Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. And good evening, everyone. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC in New York on the show where we try to get out of our political bubbles, out of our echo chambers, and listen to each other as we talk Monday through Thursday nights at this time for the first hundred days of the Trump presidency It's Indivisible. On the Tuesday night edition of Indivisible each week, as some of you may know by now, we monitor the changing of American norms during the first hundred days of the Trump administration. Are norms that matter being threatened? Are norms that had become dysfunctional being challenged? Tonight, we'll focus on American norms being put into play by the temporary travel ban. 90 days for anyone from the seven countries while they reassess the vetting process, 120 days for refugees, indefinitely for Syria. Is the norm of no religious test to come to this country being trampled? Or maybe you think that norm should no longer apply to Muslims. That's what Trump said during the campaign. Is that one of the reasons you voted for him? So is Trump trying to trample a norm? Do we normalize hate by allowing this to even start? Or maybe he's changing a norm that needs to be changed and pretending that he's not to be politically acceptable. Maybe that's how you see it. Maybe you think this is a Christian nation and we should be careful not to let too many non-Christians in. Or maybe this is the sad reality of historical American norms. You know, last night's edition of Indivisible, if you heard it, touched on this a little bit. We killed the Indians, enslaved the Africans, passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, and in turn the Japanese. What's really new here? But we got past most of those things. Maybe you're an African-American who hears that voter ID laws are about identification, not race, and you think, yeah, right. So if you're a black Christian, do you see this as not a Muslim ban? Maybe in a different way than a lot of white Christians see this as Not a Muslim ban, I wonder. So no matter who you are or how you see it, how much does this Muslim ban, uh, this Muslim ban, forgive me, how much does this travel ban, which to many people looks like a Muslim ban, begin to change some American norms, and how much for better, and how much for worse? Call us at 844-745-TALK, 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. And how about this, Norm? Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, as inscribed on the Statue of Liberty. Have you ever gone to the statue as a tourist and gotten a little teary-eyed at those words? Do we want to change it to give me your healthy, your rich, your high-tech engineers yearning to work for Google? So call us. If you voted for Trump, call us. If you didn't, you too. The number is 844-745-TALK, 745-8255. What American norms do the travel time out, except for Syria? It's indefinite for Syria. What norms do they put into play for you? Is this just a policy dispute, or is the nature of our country at stake? Now, don't be offended or think we're censoring you if we bump you 
if our screeners bump some of you, because we're going to save some lines for Trump voters. We'll save some lines for Trump detractors. We're going to save some lines for people with a variety of opinions. This is not a poll. (laughs) We're trying to start a conversation. So also anyone personally affected, always welcome to call 844-745-TALK. Now, as your first wave of calls are coming in, we have a very special guest. This afternoon, I spoke with the Washington State Attorney General, Bob Ferguson. He's the guy, a Democrat, who actually won the temporary restraining order that has put the entire travel ban on hold. I asked Bob Ferguson if he sees the case not just in terms of the law, but also of American norms that the new administration is trying to change. I guess I'm not sure if I can speak to sort of a larger political issue. What I can say is that uh, it is important in our country uh, that everybody is accountable to our laws and to our Constitution. And that is uh, central to this litigation, uh, as you know. And it is uh, certainly my expectation uh, that the new administration uh, will honor and respect and abide by that Constitution. And when the administration fails to live up to it, I view it as my responsibility to uh, hold them accountable. Uh, how that might change dynamics, I guess I've not had time, frankly, to, to spend too much time thinking about it. We're pretty focused, as you might imagine, on on getting our briefs filed and uh, preparing our arguments. Uh, but I think that's central to this case and why we're bringing it. But the Constitution has in writing certain fundamental norms and American values that you're trying to protect. Would that be right? Uh, absolutely. And so, I mean, that's the case for each piece of litigation we bring when constitutional rights are impacted. And so... Uh, you know, I, I do think that uh, it's important for this administration to realize that there is a checks and balance system in our government. Um, these are not business transactions, right? Uh, we have a system of government and a co-equal branch, which is a judicial branch, that needs to be respected. And uh, and it's appropriate to have an examination uh, of this executive order uh, and examining our Constitution and how it relates to it. Trump said in the campaign that he wanted a Muslim ban, but yes, scaled it back to be only a ban on specific countries that the Obama administration identified as having significant terror group presence or the country was a safe haven for terrorists. So why not conclude that he scaled it back so as not to change our no-religious-test norms? Sure. So a couple points there. We actually, in our complaint, uh, quote from President Trump, when he was campaigning for president, and, of course, referenced the quote that you mentioned. He had additional quotes as well. Uh, And we all go all the way through with uh, Rudy Giuliani just recently uh, saying that President Trump asked him uh, to uh, put into place a Muslim ban, but to do it legally. Uh, So I think there's been a consistent message of what this president is seeking to achieve with this executive order, and that does target Muslims. Uh, And that's not constitutional. And that's a part of our complaint. Uh, we think it's a strong uh, part of our argument. And something that's important for your listeners to know is that the law says that we need to show it's a motivating factor in the creation and establishment of that executive order. Uh, and we believe we meet that burden here. So the court would be asked to um, come up with a, to, to rule on the motivations of President Trump and his administration? Because I think what you're describing is sort of a legal sleight of hand, where they're doing something that may be within the letter of the law, but you want to try to show that the spirit is actually to change American norms. I think that's, uh, that, that's getting close to it. What's been central to the actual oral argument, for example, that we had before Judge Robart uh, last week, was the contrast of the government's position which is clear in their briefing and in their oral argument, uh, which is that 
The president has unfettered discretion to issue these executive orders, and the court cannot look behind those orders to look for what's motivating those executive orders. And my Solicitor General, Noah Purcell, when he stood up in response to that argument, said that position is frightening, uh, that our checks and balance system requires and always has requires that we can look behind the motivations, for example, that go into an executive order like this one. We cannot have a system where the president has sole discretion without any scrutiny from our judicial branch to review why an executive order is being implemented, particularly one of this scale. My guest on Indivisible is the Washington State Attorney General, Bob Ferguson, who brought the lawsuit that resulted in the temporary restraining order on the travel ban. The main focal point of your battle so far, I think, has been the treatment of the tens of thousands of people from the seven countries who already hold U.S. visas, whether they can be locked out of the country if they travel abroad or are abroad now, after being vetted and after being granted visas. Is that the most basic norm in play here? I'm not sure I would agree with that. Actually, the case that we're bringing is really on behalf of Washingtonians and Washington businesses and our universities and colleges and the adverse impact to those individuals. Now, some may be Washington residents who are abroad and are having difficulty getting back into our state, uh, but want to be crystal clear, our claims are about Washingtonians, businesses, entities here, and the adverse impacts to those students, to those individuals, to those employees and to those businesses. There's been a lot of reaction, as you know, to the president mm-hmm. calling the judge who ruled in your favor mm-hmm. a so-called judge mm-hmm. like it's a threat to the norm of an independent judiciary. But he didn't defy the judge's order. He just insulted him. Are opponents overreacting? I'm not sure it's my place. I mean, you know, frankly, Brian, we're so focused on, on this litigation. Uh, that's where I've been focused. So whether folks are overreacting or not, I can't speak to. What I can speak to is, as a lawyer, um, the importance of the judiciary, the independence of the judiciary is central to who I am and my professional life and to our system of government. And so, look, the president's comments about the federal judge are obviously disappointing. Um, and, uh, you know, my mother and father uh, worked hard to raise me and my six siblings uh, in a way to accept victory and defeat with a certain amount of grace, right? Uh, we're not going to win all the time. And I think the comments from the president. Uh, are disappointing uh, from that standpoint. I understand he suffered a defeat before the trial court. Uh, I would have preferred if he'd simply filed his, uh, his appeal and moved on. So do you have any indications or any serious concerns that the president might defy a court ruling? Because then we'd be beyond legal dispute into a constitutional crisis. Agreed. In fact, I was asked that question repeatedly the evening that this, uh, this order came down from a panel of folks on CNN, for example, and, uh, and my response was the same. My expectation is the administration will honor this for a nation of laws, and they did. Um, and so that, frankly, should come as no surprise. You simply cannot ignore a court order from a federal judge, no matter how much it disappoints you. And, uh, and so I was not surprised that, uh, frankly, uh, within a matter of hours, folks were able to arrive in our country. I had the chance to go to SeaTac Airport here in Washington State yesterday for the first time to meet folks, an individual from Somalia, an individual from Iran, being reunited with their families here in Washington State. Uh, so I was not surprised that, uh, uh, that airlines and the federal government moved quickly to honor the judge's ruling. So the independent judiciary is intact, at least for now. But you, yes. you've sued the Obama administration, too, on behalf of your state. Obama got a lot of Republican criticism for using executive power too aggressively, especially in his last few years, as they saw it. Can you see any difference in degree or type of executive power that Trump is attempting to use so far? Well, I mean, each case is 
very different on its facts. And you are right that I twice sued the Obama administration. Um, and uh, when I felt the Obama administration was violating uh, laws that adversely impacted Washingtonians, yes, I brought two lawsuits. We've prevailed on one. The second is still being litigated, actually. So for me, it's less about the occupant of the White House and more about our, is the occupant doing something unlawful or unconstitutional that harms Washingtonians. So that's frankly where my focus is on cases like this. So last couple of things, and my guest is the Attorney General of the State of Washington, Bob Ferguson, who brought the lawsuit that resulted in the temporary restraining order against the Trump temporary travel ban. Some of our callers who are the most alarmed by the Trump administration see your lawsuit as not just another legal dispute, but as part of a multi-pronged challenge to a presidency that they see as not just politically different, but a threat to core American values and potentially to our democracy itself. How much do you see your case in that context? Well, I know there has been a lot of conversation about it. I guess the context I see it in is, is the following. A core American value is, of course, our Constitution. And as a state attorney general, uh, I'm uniquely situated uh, to make sure that everybody uh, in our uh, society abides by it, even if that's the president. And so for me, that's what's at stake. It's really as simple as that. I recognize that folks have strong disagreements with the Trump administration on many levels. Will this lead to other lawsuits? That's impossible to say. However, that would not surprise me um, you know, if, if President Trump continues on a path of delivering on some campaign promises. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if additional litigation was to follow in exactly the same way that President Obama was sued by many dozens of times by Republican attorneys general, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. Uh, so we'll see what happens. I don't want to prejudge that. Uh, but we felt strongly in this case we had to act and act immediately on, on this matter. A quick follow-up then on future lawsuits. Part of the context here seems to be that you and other Democratic state attorneys general and maybe private lawyers too are using lawsuits in an unprecedented concentration, especially for so early, to oppose the Trump agenda. Where would you see your case in that context? I think that, that's laughable, truly. I mean, I think it was the uh, Attorney General of Texas, I think, literally sued the Obama administration dozens of times. He was, I suspect, was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but, tongue but he was once asked to describe his job, and his quote was, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something effective, I get up in the morning, I go to the office, I sue the Obama administration, and then I go home. Uh, like I said, I'm sure a bit tongue-in-cheek, but there was a lot of truth behind it. He sued the Obama administration many, many times on high-profile and low-profile issues. So there's nothing unique about what I'm doing. And as you pointed out earlier, I sued the Obama administration twice, not high-profile nationally. Important here, the fact that I deeply respect and admire President Obama, frankly, was irrelevant to my decision to sue the Obama administration. My job and responsibility is to focus on the law and focus on the constitutional and legal rights of the people that I represent, and frankly, I won't let anything get in my way uh, in my goal to achieve that. Attorney General Ferguson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Brian. Really appreciate it. That was the Washington State Attorney General, Bob Ferguson, in a conversation we recorded this afternoon. He's the guy who actually won the temporary restraining order that has put the entire travel ban on hold. So who wants to react to Bob Ferguson and the issues of American norms that we discussed or that I raised uh, before we played that interview? In general, how much does this travel ban begin to change some American norms and how much for the better and how much for the worse? Call us at 844-745-TALK. I see that we have two callers from Columbus, Ohio with different takes on it. So let's take Tyler in Columbus and Cardinal in Columbus together and see if we can have everybody talk and listen to each other, which is what we try to do on this show. Hi, Tyler. 
Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. Cardinal, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Cardinal, Tyler, Tyler, Cardinal. Hey. And we have three minutes before a break. Let's see what 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 we can do here. Tyler, you want to go first? Sure. Um, I just wanted to make a, um, a, a rather quick comment. Um, so I, I personally believe that the, this narrative of a Muslim ban is actually being pushed, um, I, I hate to say by the media, but it, it seems like it's being kind of amped up um, in, in a way that I don't think I don't think it was personally intended to, because um, if, if you look at these countries, these are countries that um, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton had no trouble with toppling their government. Six out of the seven countries, we haven't bombed Iran, uh, but we have dropped tens of thousands of bombs over the eight of the last, let's say, 16 years in this area. And did, I think it's been just a little bit too oversimplified, mm-hmm. in my opinion. We, we did help um, topple the government of Iran in, in the 1950s, to go further back in um, history. But, Cardinal, jump, jump right in. Well, you know, the reason why I called with the question was, did uh, uh, Trump uh, uh, pass that ban for the purpose of um, keeping uh, Muslims out of this country? And I understand his reason for it, but, you know, I guess it was brought to the attention that uh, the way he said the way the way he did it was wrong, so he tried to wash it up and say it wasn't. But I believe it was. I believe that ban was was passed to keep was was mm-hmm. because of based on a, a racial thing. Tyler, you you know what he's referring to that Trump declared a Muslim ban during the campaign. Then there was the thing Rudy Giuliani said recently that Trump came to him during the campaign and said, "All right, tell me how to do this legally," which means it's like a fig leaf for a Muslim ban. Do you not buy that? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't get into conspiracy theories too much in terms of in, in terms of uh, making that connection. Um, well, I mean, what, what, what I what I would say is hang that on, Cardinal. It's it not a truly, conspiracy theory. What, if, Cardinal? I think well, it's not. A, well, I, I guess it would be a conspiracy thing to go back <laughs> on what he said. Because it's yeah. what because it's what he said. Tyler is is the yeah. point he's making. Tyler. Sure, but the, this is the list that was created by the DHS in the Obama administration, and six out of seven of these countries are countries that we have tried night and day to destroy, that we have been bombing tirelessly. These six out of these seven countries that we're not out of war with, I'm just saying there is a reason why people are fleeing this area. It, it's not like everything is roses and, uh, you know, tulips and we're just saying no i I hear you and thank you guys for starting us off i really appreciate it this is indivisible we will continue to take your calls right after this Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255.
And I'm Brian Lehrer. And just to remind you, this is the show where we try to get out of our political bubbles, out of our echo chambers, and listen to each other as we talk Monday through Thursday nights at this time for the first hundred days of the Trump presidency. And again, on the Tuesday night edition of Indivisible each week, we monitor the changing of American norms during the first hundred days of the Trump administration, our norms that matter being threatened, our norms that had become dysfunctional being challenged, perhaps. And tonight, how much does this travel ban begin to change some American norms and how much for better and how much for worse? Let's go next to David in Kansas City, Kansas. David, that's not Kansas City, Missouri. That is the actual Kansas City, Kansas, right? Uh, well, it's a greater Kansas City area is what I what I said. Actually, I'm from Ottawa, Kansas. Okay. Thanks for calling. Not a problem. Um, my difficulty is defining what's the norm or defining what's normal. Um, I would say in the last 30 years, there is a different normal than the, if you take the last 60 years. Um I think if you go back 50 years, 60 years ago, we probably were, in large part, a Christian nation. It could be defined as such. Um, you know, and, and uh, we've been very welcoming to other um, other belief systems, and I think some of that's great, fantastic. You know, the, in fact, the Christian Bible, as well as the Jewish Bible, speaks of uh, treating the uh, the stranger well when he's within your land. And Muslims will um, say so does the Quran. Well, I would say well, they also had the Hadith, which is a little more radical. Um, I, you know, there are some unusual things that happen, though. For instance, in, um, there have been honor killings, which is highly unusual for this nation. Um, and again, I had an aunt who was who was Muslim, uh, raised in Turkey, and she was a lovely woman. I loved her pieces. A absolutely lovely woman. Um, there have been some problems with the Somalis um, who Clinton, who President Clinton, let in. With not so much for the first generation, but it seems as if the second generation um, are not nearly. And maybe I maybe I'm in, in generalizing. Perhaps I should not generalize. Right. Well, they when don't you say seem to be as appreciative as the first generation, I'm curious how you've come to that conclusion for yourself. You know, the Cato Institute, the libertarian think tank, did some number crunching that um, Politifact checked with people on both sides of the immigration and refugee issue, and they came up with. Uh, stat that somebody in America has a one in three billion chance of being killed in a terrorist attack by a refugee in this country. So no, that wasn't my point, sir. What I was, what, what the the point I was trying to make, and perhaps I didn't, uh, I didn't uh, convey that correctly, was there were were some troubles with some Somali uh, youth um, trying to go overseas. And the, the, they were afraid mm-hmm. they they make it rac- radicalized over there. So where do you um, want this... to make their way uh, over to? Uh, oh, I'm sorry, to an ISIS area. So where do you want this to land as a norm? Do you think the American norm of welcoming Muslims needs to change? Of welp- welcoming, let's say, all people without a, a religious test actually does need to change. 
No, I don't. I don't believe in a religious test. I just hope and I pray that um, that we can all live together in harmony. That that certainly sounds wonderful. I would love it. I understand that that's not the way it is in some foreign nations, and I would add to that that I would certainly much rather be a Muslim in America than I would a Christian in Saudi Arabia, for instance. David, thank you very much for calling. Shirley in Pittsburgh, you're on Indivisible. Hi, Shirley. Thank you for calling. Yeah, thank you. A couple of things. I guess the first um, thing that I have a problem with is just um, the argument that that this this travel ban is going to make our nation safer. I just just don't buy that. Um, We have a president newly elected who, in an astonishingly short amount of time, has undermined um, our national security apparatus in terms of um, his, his, his lack of willingness to really take into account the expertise that exists in our national intelligence agencies, uh, in our State Department. Um, he has, uh, even the National Security Council, changing the, the way in which that uh, body operates and who's at the table. Um, so how can someone who is, is, an, is a, an inexperienced a person in government who is unwilling to take into account the expertise around him uh, and, and then who enacts something like this that has caused such hardship and animosity and, 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 and is probably creating and seeding more uh, potential for terrorism than it is um, safeguarding against uh, such. Uh, I, I, just, I just don't buy it. And I think Madeleine Albright stated it beautifully uh, on an interview this morning and uh, explaining the, um, the uh, reasons for why this type of activity, uh, this type of action is, is really uh, not in the interest of national security. What she ta- told, stated about how our soldiers are put at risk because others are now not, they don't know how, where the United States stands and they don't see us as a trustworthy partner. So when you uh, think and, about this, do you think of it in terms of not just bad judgment regarding national security, and certainly people like John McCain agree with you and say this is going to do more to recruit other people in the Middle East to ISIS than it's going to do to protect anybody from anyone who's here. Um, Do you think of it in terms of changing American norms and a threat to the nature of our country in that respect, or just, boy, they sure are blowing this one in terms of what's going to keep us safer? Well, I think I think um, the way in which it's changing American norms is that um, what we're comfortable with in terms of how we as a country will accept the the merits of a decision that that has been made. We have a, a new president who is coming in and is basically stripping away um, the the body of knowledge, um, the the uh, you know the organizational. Uh, memory of our government. Uh, and and um, one of an earlier uh, program, uh, journalists was speaking about this, someone who just wrote um, an article in Foreign Policy magazine, and she was, she was wondering uh, what, what, you know, what our civil service will look like down the road and what our, you know, when you undermine the morale and the institutional memory of, of our government, uh, and then you continue to what bothers me mm-hmm. most, I guess, or, or, or just, uh, you know, we're not making America great again. 
when we are not at the table and not respected in the world because people no longer trust us and they no longer respect us as a nation. And they- Shirley, I'm going I'm to leave it there. Thank you so much. Please call us again. And David in Kansas City, you too. Please call us again on subsequent nights of Indivisible. Stephen in Franklin, New Hampshire, I think sees a clash of two norms here. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to Indivisible. Did I get that right? Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, uh, my thoughts on that are that there are two different norms. One where um, there's a large group of people in the United States that have grown up with comfortable with this idea of uh, refugees joining the community, immigrants joining the community. It's um, part of our everyday life. Um, and and that, I think, largely happens in the city areas. And, and so there's also this other part of America that has largely moved along not seeing that. And, and we're all subject to the emotions involving um, our changing times. You know, we see terrorist attacks and we see the hardship that, that um, changing demographics brings, uh, not just with immigration. And, 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 and maybe you've put your finger on something that also relates to how the country was divided um, in who voted for whom in the election, that as the cities, the urban areas in the United States have become more diverse, the rural areas in large part haven't. And so the cultural divide and what's seen as norms in the cities and in the more rural areas is more different than it was a generation ago. Sure. And so when you pick apart those key issues and in you and use them to really accentuate those differences and as they were i think in this election uh, i feel that they're being used to drive us apart and and when you're trying to you know accentuate these issues to get support from a particular demographic someone gets lost and I really wish we could find a solution, some way to blend mm-hmm. uh, the two sides without the fear, maybe rec- recognize each of our our concerns and feelings and you. find a way to blend them yeah. a little bit more fairly, maybe. And that's one of the things we're trying to do on this show. Stephen, thank you very much. And I hope as we get the different points of view rolling through here, everybody's listening. There's probably a grain of truth on everybody's part. Now, before the break, we heard from the Washington State Attorney General, Bob Ferguson, who won the temporary restraining order on the travel ban. Now we'll hear about one immigrant's individual story and see if it affects how you view the ban. The immigrant is a young dentist working in a residency program at the Cleveland Clinic. She has an H-1B visa, which is given by the government for workers with certain in-demand skills. She's originally from Sudan. She had left this country recently for a short vacation and arrived back in the United States last Saturday night at JFK Airport in New York on her way back to Cleveland, she thought. But guess what? The customs officers deported her back to the Middle East just before the judge in New York stayed the deportations. Her life and all her stuff were still in Cleveland. Now, because of the temporary restraining order that Bob Ferguson won, the dentist, Dr. Suha Abushama, got back into Cleveland yesterday. Here she is. First, let me start by saying how happy I am to be back here in Cleveland 
with my friends, my fiance, and all the people that I consider as part of my family. I missed everyone so much. I'm excited to continue my work here at the Cleveland Clinic where I can focus on my medical career and most importantly, caring for my patients. I've always wanted to be a doctor, like my parents who are both doctors and internal medicine physicians. My three siblings are currently in medical school in Sudan. I chose training here at the United States because it's the best training in the world. And Cleveland, Cle Cleveland Clinic stood out for me not only because it's a leading institution, but also because the clinic embraces diversity and considers residents from all over the world. Dr. Suha Abushama, now back in Cleveland. Listeners, in addition to calling us, and our lines are full right now, so I'll hold off on the number for a minute, you can comment and throw in questions using our hashtag, which is Indivisible Radio, hashtag Indivisible Radio. Joining me now is... Um, Suha Abu Shama's lawyer, Jennifer Croman. She's director of pro bono practice at the New York law firm of Cleary Gottlieb. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to Indivisible. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. You're in New York, and I see most of your practices to represent low-income people who are survivors of gender violence. Why did you get involved with Dr. Abu Shama's case? I was um, home last Saturday night and just watching on the news what was happening at the airport, at JFK Airport, at Dulles, at airports around the country, where people who had left home thinking they were coming home um, were being turned back and detained. And we had a team of lawyers from Cleary join the lawyers around the city in deploying to JFK Airlines you know, working at the diner with their cell phones and not much else. Um, and at some point during that night, my team that was on the ground at JFK said, I think we need to file lawsuits so that they don't start removing the people that we're representing. And so we filed four federal lawsuits that night um, in the Eastern District of Brooklyn, and one of those clients was uh, Suha Abushama. The other three clients were released um, throughout the night on Saturday and into Sunday. In the context of the larger travel ban and larger debate about terrorism and immigration, and you've probably heard some of our callers from various points of view so far this hour, what's the meaning of Dr. Abu Shama's case to you, besides her individual story? I mean, I think her story represents what America is, really. You know, she was, is a doctor in internal medicine at the Cleveland Clinic, matched through a residency program out of 5,000 applicants living her life in America. She's engaged to someone who's a doctor in Michigan. And to think about her not being able to come home or not be able to finish out her residency, not be able to live here, to me really puts the human face on what can sometimes be viewed as a political um, question. The H-1B visa, as I understand it, is for people with skills the U.S. needs more of. Do we need to have a dentist shortage for her to get an H-1B? Well, she isn't a dentist, actually. She's oh. a, she is not. She's a doctor of internal medicine. Oh, uh, forgive me. I got that wrong. No, no, wrong. that's okay. Um, so, uh, yes, there would have to be um, a shortage of residents applying for um, internal medicine. And Sudan is a country with many what we would call Islamist radicals. Do you know how Dr. Amashama was vetted? You know, w w just one thing. She was vetted fully, but she actually was born and raised in Saudi Arabia. Uh -huh. 
um, but she is a citizen of the, of Sudan. So I think also the sort of where people are quote unquote from in the executive order can be a little bit confusing. She was home in Saudi Arabia visiting her family because that's where they live. And of course, Saudi Arabia is not one of the countries that's on the seven country list. An American norm is that we treat individuals as individuals on their merits for legal decisions like immigration, usually. Do you and Dr. Abushama feel that norm has been violated by banning anyone from, quote-unquote, Sudan? You know, I think that I think that when the government changes what our previous policies have done, they need to do so carefully and thoughtfully. And what I saw on the ground at JFK was chaos like I have never seen before in my life. I see your practice includes defending immigrant women from the risk of so-called honor killings, a form of domestic violence. Honor killings is a concern also stated in the president's executive order, and a previous caller mentioned some honor killings in the United States um, that he says is something we didn't have previously in our country. The administration wants to publish a list of honor killings committed by immigrants or refugees here. If you read that part, do you and the administration have a common interest, or are they just trying to Muslim bait, in your opinion? I mean, I don't think that the idea of banning people or stopping people from these seven countries is going to solve the honor killing issue. And the work that I've done with various victims of honor killing has been to open our doors to people who are not from these seven countries, by the way, but perhaps other countries who are in danger where, where they are back home and representing people who are fleeing persecution in their home country and coming here seeking safety for themselves and their families. Jennifer Croman, attorney for Suha Abushama, now back practicing internal medicine, not dentistry. Uh-oh, <laughs> fake news. Sorry, sorry about that mistake. In Cleveland, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Brian. Indivisible continues. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. How about Gaga at the Super Bowl? Did she mean to give us a shout-out? I'm Brian Lehrer on Indivisible, the show where we try to get out of our political bubbles, out of our echo chambers, and listen to each other as we talk and monitor the changing of American norms during the first 100 days of the Trump administration, our norms that matter being threatened, our norms that had become dysfunctional, being rightly challenged tonight, how much does this travel ban begin to change some American norms and how much for better or for worse? Our lines are full, but when people finish up, you can call 844-745-TALK, 844-745-TALK, or use the hashtag at any time, Indivisible Radio. Eugene in Miami 
You're on Indivisible. Hello, Eugene. Oh, uh, hi. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for calling in. Um, yeah, yes, I wanted to comment about, uh, you know, I, um, I'm a physician here in Miami. I actually studied uh, medicine in Europe. I lived in Europe for for a long time. And um, something that, that I noticed uh, over over time, and I consider myself a liberal, is that the no- norms kind of pendulate. And I feel like, you know, the norms are definitely changing now, but I, I feel confident, one, that things will kind of swing back because, you know, I, I've noticed, too, when I was in, in living in Spain that, you know, the right would win and we'd get scared and then the left would win and then, the you know, and, and it seemed like, you know, people, whenever they were discontent with the economy, they would go the other way. And I, I do feel like right now, we're, you know, people are really panicked. Um, in Miami, I've definitely seen a big change, you know, from when I used to live here to when I live here now. You know, I, I have a you know, Cuban family uh, who, for the first time, panicking, you know, since we lost a special status uh, for Cuban immigrants here in Miami, mm-hmm. that you were going to be targeted now like, you know, other, other immigrants. And I, I was actually kind of happy to see this change happen because I think a lot of, um, you know, the sentiment in Miami was that, you know, you you didn't really worry about what was happening about to to the other immigrants because you know Cubans weren't treated the same way, and you know I'm, I was actually you know happy to see that there's a, like a stronger. That's really interesting. You know, yeah, for people who don't know, because of the relationship between Cuba and the United States and Castro and everything over all those years, uh, anybody who got here from Cuba by hook or by crook, was allowed in. And that changed um, at the end of, of the Obama administration. But you're saying the changing of that norm ties Cubans together with other immigrant groups more than they were before, and you like that. Uh, yes, uh, yes. I, you know, I, I definitely think there was a, a Cuban arrogance. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about the immigration in Miami, but the atmosphere is so different than other cities because, you know, Cubans are special. Once you touch ground, you could stay mm-hmm. here. Everything had a, you know, a Cuban ex- exemption when you're filling out immigration forms. And I definitely feel like, you know, a lot of Cubans were, were not empathetic to the plight of other, immigra- other immigrants. Mm-hmm. And I'm definitely seeing that in, you know, last couple of years and until even the last couple of weeks like yeah. people were, were panicked we kind of i feel like people could feel the change coming you know a lot of people were trying to get their family over here because you kind of with the with the the relations normalizing people thought that it would change and i do feel like a lot you know a lot more people now are are you see a lot more democratic sentiment you know before miami was really republican uh-huh. cubans are really republican interesting yeah and certainly they've been historically and i guess that's been changing with the younger generation maybe now faster as a result of what you've been saying thank you so much for calling i really appreciate your perspective no, thank you let's go back to columbus ohio for mona lisa really mona oh. lisa yes it was uh, my birth name is mona lisa welcome to indivisible thank you very much so um, it is my opinion. I came to, uh, to the United States 20 years ago in 1997, and I, even until now, I'm a, I am a U.S. citizen, but I still consider myself as an outsider. I look at everything, you know, from different perspectives. I don't consider myself as a Democrat, liberal, conservative, or whatever it is, but I am a realist. So what I'm saying right now, I agree. I am 100% agree with the travel ban. That was uh, that was decided by the President Trump on seven countries. This is what I am sick and tired of. The, everybody playing it as a Muslim ban. I don't think it's a Muslim ban. This is a seven countries, which is radicals. 
they are I did not say that we cannot you know we cannot accept the refugees. We will eventually accept the refugees, but you know we have to let it stop for a minute. President Trump said in ninety days it will be processed, and you know give him a chance, give the country a chance right now we are in a chaotic situations, not just the immigration from the war from everything else, everybody demonstrating which I think it's a nonsense. Everybody got to accept now. We have to, we have to unite it. it. Cannot be divided anymore. Then this is how we can settle everything else. The other thing too that I also noticed, as an you know, in America, we could not always policing, you know, and be the protector of the world at all times. We have problems in this country. Just look at Chicago. Just look at Columbus. Columbus is so divided right now. It is not funny at all. And this is what I also, in my opinion. As an immigrant, that the refugees that's already settling here, we have to be an example. We have to make ourselves an exemplar to the, to the, you know, to the, to the people around us. We have to assimilate. We cannot, you know, separate ourselves. I will. I live in Grove City, Grove City in the suburb of Columbus, and majority people in Grove City are white. And I always work majority with, you know, Caucasian. And then some of them are, you know, like African-American. I have no issue with any, you know, anybody with different race, different religions. But this is the thing. I tried, I tried, you know, in my very best to assimilate, to learn other tradition. And I am not pushing my culture, my tradition, you know, to, to everybody else. I have to accept what majority decision, I, the I, majority decision. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have kids, but if... Oh, you, I have kids. I have two teenagers. And do you also try to um, give them some of your Indonesian heritage to not lose at the same time as Absolutely. you assimilate? Absolutely. In fact, two years ago, I brought them to Indonesia, and I want them to see what we have in the United States, and you appreciate what we have. We have a good police in the in the country. In Indonesia, it's one of the top three, the most corrupted country in the world. Moni, Lisa, I, have, I want to ask you something, because Indonesia is one of the countries that's um, very Muslim-majority that the Trump administration cites as, oh, it's not a Muslim ban, because like, we're not banning people from Indonesia, which is such a heavily Muslim country, but that's a country that doesn't have Islamist terrorism. Do you? I don't know if you're Muslim yourself or if you want to say on the radio, but do you buy that? Like that? No, I did not buy that because, like I said, Indonesia, there is Malaysia, there is Brunei Jerusalem, there is Turkey that is right bordering with all of these countries, and then of course Saudi Arabia. But you know, we we you know we have a trade with the with the with Saudi Arabia. Also, America has trade with Indonesia. But you know, there is still other countries like Malaysia, like Brunei Jerusalem. Brunei Jerusalem, mm-hmm. especially, it's still very very strict in their religion. So. But they are free to go. They're free to come and go, you know, as long as they follow yeah. the rules and they have documents. They have Mona Lisa, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much for your call. Um, with us now for a few minutes of how it looks from the region where the seven countries are. And by the way, they are Iraq, Iran, Libya, Somalia, Yemen, Sudan, and Syria. Um, With us for this is Deborah Amos, NPR Middle East correspondent, who has also reported on many refugees. Hi, Deb. Thanks for joining us for this on Indivisible. Hi there. I've been listening. It's been interesting. Um, I'm curious what 
you see over there. Um, I wonder what you see in terms of um, the countries who we deal with over there. You know, John McCain, who I mentioned earlier, too, is worried that we're so alienating the governments over there who we're supposed to have, uh, you know, good relations with and who we need good relationships with to uh, to fight ISIS are going to be so alienated that it's actually going to be harder rather than easier because of the Muslim ban. What, what, what sense are you getting from the countries you report on? You certainly could see that in the reactions, uh, you know, newspaper headlines, politicians talking about it. Um, the head of Iran said that it revealed the true face of America. So, yes. And I also see it probably f more from the refugees who are trying to come to the U.S. For the most part, these are people who are running from you know, Islamic, Islamist militants, um, you know, they have been driven out of their homes by very, you know, by these militants. These are not people who buy that ideology, and yet they have been painted with that brush when we hear over and over again that we don't know who they are and that the vetting is not rigorous enough. I've, you know, spent a lot of time looking into the vetting, and it is quite rigorous, um, and it is rigorous on both immigrant and non-immigrant visa holders. It's almost as tough for those people to get into the United States as it is for refugees. It's just a different process, but it's the same sort of background checks, security checks, um, you know, law enforcement checks, uh, running through databases uh, in, in both categories. The argument from the administration is there's no way in what is now kind of a failed state in Syria with Assad controlling some of it and ISIS controlling some of it and to varying degrees, similar situations in the other countries, to get any records proving much about any refugees, it'll come down to interviews with them, whatever the vetting process is. And that's hard to really trust altogether. Is that an accurate premise? Well, refugees don't come from nice places. That's the whole point. And so you are always going to have refugees from places where you can't get data. But let's talk about uh, Syria, for example, you know, would you really trust? We have absolutely no security cooperation at all uh, with Syria. Would would this administration trust the data that they got, even if they could have it? Uh, and I think the answer is probably no. But, you know, with especially with Syrians and with Iraqis, there are heightened, uh, you know, uh, vetting that goes on. And, and these are counter-terrorist specialists who are looking at records, at backgrounds, at family trees, um, at documents. Uh, and, and so they take it very seriously to, right. to try to determine if there's any connection at all, a cousin, an uncle, a brother. And if you have that in your background, you do not get on that plane. Stay with us, Deb, for some calls, and we'll talk to them together. Janice in Chicago, you're on Indivisible. Hi, Janice. Hi. I just wanted to say that, you know, I feel like America is going backwards. And as I stated before that and when I was speaking to you, that it's just that we feel as though since Obama was elected eight years ago, we kind of just rested our laurels thinking we're moving forward. Everybody was accepted in this country. You know, we I work at the University of Chicago Medical Center, and we work with a wide variety of people who have visas that come in and phenomenal people. And all of a sudden, 
you hear this travel ban, and you're, and he said it wasn't going to be a Muslim ban, but he said during the entire election that there was going to be a Muslim ban. I hear you were upset. You told our screener you were upset by the caller from Indonesia, from Columbus. Janice? And yes, and right, I was, and she she was talking about what she was saying was, you know, basically the vetting process and how she felt that that this was, you know, these people should be punished or not punished, but they they were coming from these countries, and there's no proof, and Trump has no proof proving this, and I think that the difference is the norm that we used to have was that there was proof moving forward. You had positive things that you were going to do, that you had, you know, Obama used actual things, and he went through and listened to people, and Trump just says statements that aren't true. No one seems to fact-check him, and when they do, he just calls the media liars, and he's got Kellyanne Conway out there. He's got Giuliani saying things that are obviously, you know, and basically putting people in fear. And right now, coming out and saying that America media does not do, does not properly talk about how many terror attacks have occurred all over the world is so wrong because if you listen to BBC like I do, BBC talks about a terror attack that occurred somewhere in Paris, but we spend an entire day on CNN or MSNBC talking about it, and we terrorize people in this country Mm -hmm. because if we have people who are in fear, they don't think about anything else because you blame somebody else, and that's what we seem to be doing now. Janice, thank you very much. Yeah, there are certainly some people, media critics, who say the media reports too much on terrorism relative to other risks in the world because it's so sensational. Philip in Savannah, you're on Indivisible. Hello, Philip. Hey there. Thanks for taking my call, and I really appreciate the platform you're presenting here. It seems to be very kind of open and fair and balanced, and uh, some really great uh, uh, great guests. Thank uh, you. Really good voices of authority, uh, you know, and, and experience. Uh, you know, just from my simple perspective is, um, of course, with Trump, you know, he comes from the entertainment world and is a bit of a showman. And, uh, you know, this is, of course, you have to kind of chalk up to some theatricality. But my, the point that I'm wanting to make is, I, you know, I know that these countries have been identified. And even previously, they're saying it was identified by the Obama administration. But where is the fact supporting this executive order? And how, how does that, where are the facts that give it credence and give it teeth? And my, my further question is, is that the American norm that we've accepted recently since the big war on terror is, you know, creating a great division and creating, uh, you know, division between religions and, 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 and all sorts. But is the, the question I have is, is the foundation of this war on terror even flawed for us to be making these decisions on? Because mm-hmm. we're not seeing a real clear enemy here. It's very mysterious with pockets of groups here and there. You know, and we've known to be flawed in our efforts in the past. You know, there was no ma- weapons of mass destruction to warrant going into Iraq. And right. That- and, of course, Trump used that against the CIA and the Russian hacking investigation. But, Philip, thank you very much. So, Deb, as somebody who reports from the Middle East, can there be the kind of clear picture that Philip and Savannah would like to see to base policy on? You know, the thing that I was thinking about listening to the three callers is that everything that they are talking about is going to be embodied in this court decision. What the judges talked about is human toll versus presidential power. There was a question about can um, a court second-guess the president based on newspaper articles, and the answer is yes. That That's all, you know, I, I don't think that the court can address the question that the last caller asked. 
asked, which is, can we be precise? Do we have evidence? Of course, in the war on terror, you don't have precise evidence. But I think that the argument that we are seeing play out now is actually about something different. Uh, It's about how we are going to proceed. It's your norm question. You know, do we take into account human toll versus um, unfettered presidential power? That was the argument in the in the court. Can the president define that war on terror in the way that he did? Seven countries, no refugees um, for 90 days, uh, reviewing policy and Syrians indefinitely without any specific evidence uh, that tells us mm-hmm. that Syrians are particularly dangerous. There, there's yeah. no particular evidence that says so. Deborah Amos, keep covering the Middle East for NPR. We appreciate your reporting, and thanks so much for giving us some time on Indivisible tonight. Thank you. So what have we learned tonight on Indivisible? We've learned that we are a nation divisible on this issue, aren't we? We've learned, I think, and some of the callers reflected it, which I really appreciate, that people can hear each other's concerns, if not have their minds changed all that much, at least in one conversation. So we will continue to have many more on this program. In the meantime, are you wondering how your local electeds are responding to the travel ban? WNYC and NPR put together a tool to help you find out. You can click on the link at IndivisibleRadio.com. And if your congressperson hasn't answered the question yet, maybe they'll answer you. Put a call in and report back. We want to know where every member of Congress stands. Tomorrow, our Wednesday night host, Charlie Sykes, with former Bush speechwriter David Frum, who says all this protesting might actually help Trump Trump, tear down our democracy. That's David Frum's view tomorrow night on Indivisible. I'm Brian Lehrer. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. I'll talk to you next Tuesday. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.